Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? People were absolutely amazed. I mean, what has got into this guy? Well, we know it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, what has happened to this guy? Isn't this the guy that was out, was just like a, a madman, just anywhere he could find Christians, dragging them into jail and persecuting the name of the Lord, you know, those who called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? What's happened? He, all of a sudden now he's, he's fellowshipping with these Christians. He's, he's preaching that Christ is the Son of God. The transformation that takes place in a person's life when they come to Jesus Christ and are made a new creation and the Holy Spirit comes inside of them is truly remarkable. Especially remarkable among those people who had lived all their life in one direction and suddenly now they have turned around and are going in the opposite direction. Saul of Tarsus never did anything in a mediocre way. Everything he did, he did with all the zeal and the heart that he had. He was so zealous for Judaism. Here's a guy running 100 miles an hour in one direction, persecuting the, the, the people of God, out dragging people into jail and so on and so forth, running 100 miles an hour in one direction until he hits a brick wall named Jesus Christ. He gets up, spins around the other way, and shoots himself out 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. It's going to cause people to say, what in the world is going on with this guy? Well, you know, his conversion was so dramatic that there have been people that were skeptics that have reluctantly studied the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and become Christians because they could not explain how a man could make have that kind of transformation take place in his life overnight like that. And in fact, your life and the transformation that God works in your life is the greatest testimony this world will ever see. I believe it's what opens the door into people's hearts. I think it's what opens the door and gives us an opportunity to share Christ. Our light preceding us, our light, the light of a changed life, people knowing how we were before we came to Christ and now how we are right now. Not that we're perfect by any means, but there's definitely some major changes that have gone on the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. And as people see that, they're amazed. And I think it's many times that's what opens the door in their hearts and causes them to ask us, what is going on? What has happened to you? And then we can share Jesus. So it's a pretty powerful testimony, right? Now, in between verses 21 and 22, there is a gap of time. We learned this from Galatians chapter 1. Paul tells us that, and we're not sure where it happened. I think it's right here, though, between verses 21 and 22, where Paul said in Galatians 1, I left Damascus and went down to Arabia for a while before I returned to Damascus. I think you see in verse 22 his return to Damascus. But for a period of time, we don't know how long it was, Saul, after initially preaching that Jesus is the Son of God and so on, he left Damascus and went down to Arabia just to be alone with God. You say, why did he do that? I think it was God leading him down there. I think that God wanted Paul, uh, at this time, of course, Saul, Saul to come away and spend just time with the Lord. He had a lot to think about. And it was during this time when God began to lay a spiritual New Testament foundation in his life. Of course, he was a master scholar in the word, the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament scriptures backward and forward. But now in Arabia, all by himself, 
I think that God began to show Paul how that everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Can you imagine studying the scriptures all your life as an Old Testament rabbi, as a rabbi that studied the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden it's like God pulls the curtain away and you're, for the first time you see that everything is pointing to Jesus Christ? And I think it was that during this time, God also began to work in Paul's heart to show him how so many of the doctrines of the, uh, that would eventually become the New Testament were grounded or rooted in the Old Testament. As Augustine once said, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. And I think it was here that God began to lay a good, solid spiritual foundation upon which he was going to build and upon which Saul then could then build his ministry on. Even the great apostle Paul needed time for God to lay a foundation. Even Paul didn't just get saved one day and then go out and begin to lead a church and begin to pastor. Sometimes young Christians say, look, I've been a Christian now for like three or four months. Isn't it time for me to get out there and, and start pastoring somewhere? Whoa, hang on now. Okay, I appreciate the zeal, but zeal that is without knowledge is a dangerous thing. And Paul himself would later on write a young pastor named Timothy and say, look, don't lay hands on any man too quickly, especially not a novice. Give them time to grow and to mature. Don't hurry into the teaching ministry, James would say in chapter 3, because we are going to incur the more strict judgment. We are the ones standing up, teaching the word of God, telling others about God and what God wants for their lives. We had better get it right. We had better know what we're talking about. Not that I understand everything in the Bible. I've been studying it for 25 years, and I, there's a lot I don't still understand. But I understand the basics. And we had better know the basics and be able to share those things. So I guess I'm just really concerned about what uh, some have called um, celebrity conversions. How some celebrity supposedly has this conversion experience, you know, professes faith in Christ. And what does the church do? Oh, let's you know, get them, rush them into every conference. Churches across America are lining up to, to get this person to come out and share their testimony. Many times the person has never really been grounded in the faith. But we got them up there because they're a celebrity. And they're saying things that really are not really accurate. Sometimes they're not even truly saved. We haven't given them time to really see where they're coming from. And so I've seen several of these celebrity conversions go sour. I've seen several of these big names at one point renounce the faith, walk away from Christ. So we need to understand that even Paul needed some time to get away. And I believe it was at this time also that God revealed the gospel to him. But Paul tells us in Galatians, we're going to go there in a minute. Paul tells us in Galatians that nobody told him the gospel. They say, well, how did he get saved? He met Jesus Christ, okay? He met Jesus face to face. He had an unusual conversion experience. But the nuances of the gospel, all the, you know, the, the, that it was not by works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ, that was revealed to him supernaturally by the Lord. And it was during this time. Now, we come to verse 22 then. He's back, all right? Now he's back. And he is rooted and grounded now. He's had, I don't know, maybe a year or even two alone with God. 
in an intensive Bible study, I'm convinced, by the Holy Spirit, just teaching him, showing him how the Old Testament points to Christ, showing him how that, that the doctrines in the Old Testament are really, uh, you know, they're, they're doctrines that pointed to Jesus and will have their fruition in a relationship with Christ. I mean, this guy is, talk about a super Christian now. He's, he's really, he's not only saved, he is taught, grounded, and he has now been let loose by the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 says that, um, but Saul increased in all, uh, all the more in strength, spiritual strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Oh, I wish I could have heard that. I wish I could have heard Paul preach. I bet he was dynamic. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. You couldn't, they couldn't argue with him. He would just wipe them out in a debate. So let's just get rid of the guy. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, let me just stop there. He tells us that it was three years before he finally came to Jerusalem the first time. So he spent a total of three years in Damascus and Arabia before he came to Jerusalem the first time. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. The Greek actually says when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he kept trying to join the disciples, but they would have none of him. In other words, they were skeptical. As you can well imagine, this guy, again, was public enemy number one to the church. He was, he was bringing people into prison. He was, he was like a madman. All of a sudden now, he's a Christian. Oh, yeah, right. It's a trap. It's a setup. The guy's he's pretending to be saved to get our trust, and then he's going to arrest all. As soon as we let him know who we are and who's Christians, then he's going to get all of us in jail, right? And so they were skeptical. Besides the fact he disappears for a couple of years, nobody knows where he went, and he comes back claiming to be an apostle, that he's seen the risen Christ. We don't even believe he's a disciple, let alone an apostle. So they were totally skeptical of Saul. But thank God for Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly in Damascus, in the name of Jesus. You know, Barnabas had the nickname Son of Consolation, or we might paraphrase, Mr. Encouragement. Barnabas had a ministry of encouragement. Do you realize how important encouraging one another is in the body of Christ? The New Testament admonishes us over and over again to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. I think that applies right now, folks. I think that applies right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in our country there's a lot of fear and anxiety even among God's people and we need to encourage each other we need to keep our eyes on Jesus the day is approaching for his return and we need to remind ourselves that this world is not out of control everything is being orchestrated by our Heavenly Father he is in complete control even though man looks like he's completely out of control that might be from a human standpoint but God is overall superintending everything and bringing all things together according to his will and purposes. In that, I need to rest. I need to rest. You might want to read Psalm 37 and Psalm 91 again this week. They might help to kind of calm some of those fears. But Barnabas had a ministry of encouragement. 
I mean, we're all called to encourage each other, but Barnabas had the ministry of encouragement. And I, I'm so thankful for the Barnabases in the body of Christ, men and women. I'm so thankful for those people that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit and humble and kind enough to, to, to be sensitive to when somebody really needs a little boost, needs a kind word or a thoughtful card or just something to kind of lift their spirit. They're not visible. Many times, you, you know, they're not on television. They're not leading large congregations, but they are so important to the body of Christ. When other Christians there in Jerusalem were skeptical, were putting Saul down, were saying he's a deceiver, he's a phony, here's Barnabas, comes alongside the guy, puts his arm around and says, come on, Saul, I'll take you down to the apostles. I know these guys. I'll go to bat for you. And, and if it wasn't for Barnabas, the other apostles may never have warmed up to Saul. So he takes them down there and introduces them, him, I should say, to the apostles. Now, at this point, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 1, because Paul talks about this. I'm just going to read you verses, starting at verse 11, where Paul said, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie, Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So Saul is just recounting, or Paul is just recounting his early ministry. And so it says here in verse 28, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. What an interesting uh, turn of events. <laughs> the Hellenists were Jews that had been raised in Gentile country, outside of Israel. They were, uh, were taught the Greek language. Uh, they lived uh, among those in the Greek culture. Um, and, and, and Saul, having grown up in Tarsus, was one of those. He was a, a Hellenist Jew. He was with these other Hellenist Jews in denouncing Stephen and calling for his execution. I mean, Saul, this was Saul's group. They were once buddies, but now he's saved, and they've all turned against him. Maybe you've experienced this. The people that you once hung with and your friends and all, when you got saved, many of them turned against you. Couldn't handle it. And so Saul is so powerful in his preaching that they can't 
they can't win the, the debate. They can't stand against it. So they want to kill him. So Saul has picked up Stephen's mantle, basically. Here he was, the one who was calling for Stephen's execution, and now he kind of picks up Stephen's mantle and begins to run with it, and he takes up the, the ministry Stephen began and begins to preach now that Jesus is the Christ. And these Hellenist Jews just can't, uh, can't take it. Okay, They can't deal with it. Now, at this point, keep your finger here, turn to Acts 22, because Paul talks about this when he is recounting and giving his testimony in Acts 22, starting in verse 17. He said, Now what happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Now God's telling Paul, Paul, you got to get out of here. Get out now, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. You see, Saul figured, look, Lord, who better to reach my old friends than me? I mean, look, I was one of them. We all used to persecute your people. I was one of the guys who was the ringleader when Stephen was stoned. Certainly, if I go back to them and talk to them about you, they'll listen to me. God says, Paul, don't even bother. Get out of here now. In fact, God gave him a vision of himself telling him, get out of town now. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. He evidently shared that with the saints in Jerusalem. Verse 30, and when, they, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So they got him out of town, all right, just Send him back home to Tarsus. We are not going to hear from the Apostle Paul now for another seven years. He doesn't show up again until chapter 11, verse 25, when Barnabas goes to Tarsus, gets him, convinces him to come back to Antioch, where he begins to pastor the church there and work side by side with Barnabas, who become missionary partners in spreading the gospel throughout Europe. Seven years. It will be seven years before we hear from him again. Ten total from the time he got saved. Now you say, well, what was he doing during this time? Well, if you know Paul, he wasn't sitting around doing nothing. In fact, we just saw a little glimpse in Galatians 1. It was during this time that he was establishing churches in Syria, Cilicia, and throughout Galatia. So he was very busy until Barnabas talks to him, brings him back to Antioch, and Antioch becomes the headquarters for the Gentile church, a dynamic church from which Paul and Barnabas were, were sent out to bring the gospel all over Europe and Asia Minor. So the story now kind of shifts to Peter. Then all the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiply. So Paul was kind of like a spiritual hot potato. I mean, uh, you know, everywhere he went, um, riots broke out and, uh, and, and conflict uh, arose. Not because of him, but because of the gospel he preached. But after they sent him back to Tarsus, the churches there in Judea and Galilee and Samaria had some rest. Now, it's interesting how that many times God will do this in our lives. 
he brings some adversity, some storms, you know, and things get all kind of shook up for a while, and it's, wow, just the persecution is going, and or there's some kind of adversity that hits, and for a while our, our spiritual adrenaline is flowing, and we're just, wow, it's like we're on our knees all the time because we're just praying God to just, you know, see us through this conflict or this crisis. Then all of a sudden things quiet down for a while, and there's some peace. God gives you time to just kind of, you know, just kind of have a little peace and, 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 and the Holy Spirit's kind of working quietly in your life, but you start getting a little complacent and here come the storms again, and God kind of does that, you know, and I've seen that in my ministry. Long periods of peace and joy and calmness and people were growing and just having a good time in the Lord, followed by some intense times of persecution, adversity, you're praying like crazy, you know, it's wearing you out a little bit, and all of a sudden, peace and calm again, and it's really nice, and and just that seems to be the way the Lord often does things. Now, verse 32, it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country. Again, the story now shifts back to Peter. And the last time we saw Peter was in chapter 8. He was in Samaria with John, laying hands on the Samaritan Christians, and God was doing a mighty work there. Well, you have to understand the apostles function in more of an itinerant ministry. What does that mean? They traveled around, preaching the gospel and teaching the saints. And so Peter's travels took him to, uh, to Lydda. Lydda is modern-day uh, Lod, which is just south of the Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel. Uh, Lydda, not too far from the coast there. And um, when he came to Lydda, he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So again, God is working powerfully through Peter, through the other apostles. And signs and wonders were following them wherever they went. And as Peter is allowed, uh, used by the Holy Spirit to heal this, Aeneas, wow, I mean, crowds are, are gathered and people are getting saved left and right as they see the power of God in operation. Sharon is a strip of land about 10 miles wide, 50 miles long. Lydda is in the southeastern part of that strip. So if you look on a Bible map, you kind of get an idea where we are. We're by the coast, by the Mediterranean. Sharon is really not a town. It's a, it's a we call it the Sharon Valley. The, it's a fertile strip of ground that runs about 50 miles north and south, about 10 miles wide. Lydda is in the southeastern part of that strip of land. Now, verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Now, Joppa is modern-day Jaffa. It's about 30 miles south of Caesarea. Caesarea is about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Just to kind of it's on the coast. We'll talk about more, that more in a moment, okay? But, but Peter finds himself in Joppa. Joppa is an interesting place, by the way, because biblically, it was the place that Jonah fled to, to when God told him to go to the Gentiles, to go to the Ninevites, and preach, the, you know, preach to them that they might repent and receive the God of Israel. What did Jonah do? He went down to Joppa, got in a boat, and sailed farthest he can go, okay, uh, down by Spain. And what did God do? God sent a big storm, a big wind, and uh, tossed the sailors for about, 
I don't know, maybe it was a week or two, and, and uh, fi- they were terrified, right? Well, it's interesting. God is going to tell Peter to go to the Gentiles while he's in Joppa. He obeys the Lord, goes to the Gentiles, and God sends another kind of wind, the wind of the Holy Spirit, and the result is not fear but peace and joy as people get saved. So it's kind of an interesting place, right? But Joppa, he goes there, and in this town was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Tabitha is the Aramaic name. Dorcas is the Greek name. They both mean gazelle, although I have to admit I prefer Tabitha. (laughs) And I guess back then it was nice to name your daughter gazelle. It spoke probably of grace and beauty. Today I'm not so sure the girls would appreciate that, but, but, but here was a gal who was, it says that she was a woman full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. She just was one of those kind of people that wanted to serve everybody. Wanted, was always concerned about other people. If they needed a, a cloak, she knitted for them. If they needed a meal, they, she'd make it for them. Again, thank God for people like this in the body of Christ too. Just to have that heart to serve. We're all called to be servants. But some just seem to have that gift of hospitality, that gift of service. They just want to minister to people in in any way they can. And so she was really loved by the people there uh, in uh, Joppa. And it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. It was customary for the Jews to wash a body. If a person died, they would wash the body and anoint it with the spices and, uh, and, and all to prepare it for burial. And so they had done this, and she was kind of uh, laid out in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. You have to understand that at this time, there were no government social programs. There was no programs to help widows and orphans. They depended on the generosity of others. And of course, when the church began, And you had a group of people who loved Jesus and were taught by Jesus to love others, to give sacrificially, and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, don't you know that they went to work loving their communities, reaching out, opening their homes. It was the Christians who would go into the Colosseum at night in Rome. When people would abandon, see all this, they had all these um, uh, fertility goddesses that they worshipped through sexual orgies and things. This led to a lot of unwanted pregnancies. And so they would oftentimes, women would have the children and then throw them into the Colosseum to either die from exposure to the elements or wild animals would eat them uh, or slave traders would come and and take these kids and raise them and then sell them as sex slaves. When the church started, the Christians would go into the Colosseum and rescue these kids and would raise them in their homes. The government was never intended by God to reach out and to show love. That's the body of Christ's job. And I think that this hurricane down south is, has overwhelmed the federal government. They're doing the best they can. They were never intended, though, by God to do the work of taking people in and feeding people and housing people. That is the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful to see churches stepping up to the plate 
Christians saying, look, I'll take kids. I'll take families. They can live with us. We have plenty. This is the time in our nation's history for the church to really shine. And we're seeing it. And I'm grateful for it. And you know that we have people coming to Chicago. Something like five, ten thousand 10,000 of these displaced Americans who are coming to Chicago. We have an opportunity even right here to show the love of Christ to these folks. And so I'm just grateful that out of tragedy, God always seems to get glory in some way. That he always can make good come out of the worst thing. Because many times it's just an opportunity for us as his people to step up to the plate and let our light shine. But anyways, she was well-loved because she took care of orphans and widows. And they wept as they showed Peter all the things that she had made for them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Can you imagine? It's almost reminiscent of what Jesus did in his ministry. Remember Jairus' daughter, a little 12-year-old girl that had died? And Jesus took Peter and James and John with him to Jairus' house. And here was this little girl, you know, laying there dead. And Jesus, at one point, puts everybody out except for the disciples. And he turns to her and says, Talitha Kumi, which is Aramaic for little girl, arise. She opens her eyes, and the Lord took her by the hand and presented her back to his, her parents. Well, here Peter says, Tabitha Kumi. She opens her eyes. He takes her by the hand and presents her back to the church, to the family of God. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. That's interesting. I see Peter growing. I see him barriers and prejudices beginning to fall. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, uh, the Jews considered uh, tanners unclean because they dealt with uh, the hides of dead animals. Uh, Jewish law said if you touch anything that's dead, you're unclean, you're defiled. You, no Jew would ever uh, set foot in the house of a tanner. But Peter is, is growing. He's growing out of those old prejudices and things. And so he stays right there at the house of Simon, who was a tanner. And there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Now, if you've been to Israel, you, you've been to Caesarea. Caesarea sits right on the Mediterranean coast. It is beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. It was built by Herod the Great in honor of uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar. So it was called after his name, Caesarea or Caesarea. Uh, it was the capital of Judea, the Roman capital of Judea. The governor had his, uh, his uh, palace up there. Herod had a palace as well. And it was a very, it's a very beautiful place. And um, Cornelius was stationed there. Uh, he was a centurion, which means that he was a uh, commander of 100 men, 100 soldiers. He belonged to the Italian regiment. A regiment was 600 men. Obviously, these guys were from Italy, and they were stationed here in, uh, in Israel. And a regiment, 600 guys, uh, had six 
centurions, and so there's a group of men. They were very close, no doubt. Uh, but Cornelius was what was called a God-fearer. What does that mean? He was a man who had come to believe in the God of Israel. He had come to fear the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he wasn't um, a proselyte to Judaism. In other words, he had not been circumcised. He was not living according to the law of Moses. But he was just a devout man who loved the God of Israel, believed he was the true God. Because he was not a full-fledged proselyte, he could not bring his sacrifices to the temple to have them offered to God. So he compensated by giving money to, to poor people, poor Jewish people. Uh, he prayed constantly. He was a very generous man. These God-fearers were very sympathetic towards the Jewish people, had embraced Judaism somewhat. I mean, on some levels, not all of it, not the whole deal. But, you know, they were very uh, sympathetic towards the Jewish people uh, and were very good to them. Cornelius was one of these. It just shows us, though, how religious a person can be and yet not really be saved. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's a man who is very sincere. He's not a Christian yet. He's not a believer. But he's a man who loves God. He is sincere, doing the best he can with the information that he has. In fact, he's a real classic example of how if a person lives up to the light that they have, God will always get them more light, enough to be saved. And that's exactly what's going on here. I mean, with all of his praying and giving to poor people, that wasn't enough to get him saved, obviously. We know that those things can't save us. But God saw his heart. God saw that he was a seeker. He wanted to know God. He was doing the best he could with the information he had, and God says, I'm going to get him enough information to be saved. And so this is, that's what this whole story is about that we're reading now. And so about the ninth hour, which is about three in the afternoon, the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he had observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Alms are just gifts of money given to poor people. Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Cornelius obviously had never even heard of Peter, uh, but the angel was telling him what to do now. And send these men to Joppa for Simon Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house, house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew nearer the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, about noon. Now, here's something interesting. A little side note. When God is doing a work and God is speaking, he's always speaking on both ends. He's speaking to Cornelius, but he's also going to speak to Peter. And that is important because it's important that we understand that if God is directing our lives in some way, people might, he might speak to others to confirm what he's speaking to our hearts. But you never let somebody else come to you and say, hey, God spoke to me. You're to go over here and do this. Really? Well, he hasn't spoken to me. Well, he spoke to me pretty clearly. Oh, I guess I ought to do that. No, absolutely not. If God is working... He'll be working in your heart, 
And he may use another brother or sister to confirm something he's speaking to your heart about. No problem with that. But you never, ever let anybody direct you in the will of God until God has spoken to you. I, I get a kick out of what my pastor, Pastor Chuck, said a couple of times in his ministry. Characters have come to him and said, Chuck, God spoke to me very clearly this week that I was to give the message this Sunday. <laughs> and Chuck said, well, when God speaks very clearly to me, you can do it. Okay. And I've seen, though, people who try to control other people's lives in the church because they believe very strongly God has spoken to them. And, you know, you cannot make important decisions based on anyone else's conviction. God has got to speak to you. And yet I've seen Christians do this. They'll quit their jobs and move across country. They'll marry people that God had never told them to marry because somebody else said, God told me you're to marry this person. And it has been an absolute disaster. So just a little insight here from this story. But God has spoken to Cornelius, and now he was going to speak to Peter. And Peter goes up to Simon's rooftop, which is a patio. If you've been to Israel, there are rooftops or patios. And so he was up there about noon. While he was waiting for them to prepare lunch, he goes to pray, and he falls into a trance. He was very hungry and wanted to eat, verse 10. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. In the Greek, it's emphatic. That's why I'm kind of stressing that. Nuts! No way, God! <laughs> wrong. Wrong wrong response. <laughs> Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Well, obviously, we've already pointed out. If Jesus is your Lord, you cannot say, Not so, Lord, when he tells you to do something. If he's your Lord, he controls your life. All you can say is, Yes, Lord, what will you have your servant do? Where do you want me to go? If this is what you're telling me to do, that's where I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to do. But Peter saw this sheet coming down from heaven, you know, like bound by the four corners. All of a sudden it touches the earth, opens up, and all these unclean animals are in there. And the Lord says, Peter, you're hungry. Rise, kill, have a barbecue. Not so, Lord. You say, well, what was this whole thing about? The Lord was using this to basically communicate to Peter that the Gentiles were no longer unclean. You say, well, why did he use this illustration? I don't know. Peter was hungry. It was lunchtime. I don't know. Maybe something like this would communicate to him more than anything else. I don't know. I, I, I think probably, though, it was that the Jewish dietary laws set forth in the Old Testament had some practical um, application i mean it kept them from eating certain food, animals that did carry disease pork is uh, famous for carrying uh, trichinosis and other things so i think in some ways it, it kept them from from eating some animals that god knew were were disease carriers but primarily those dietary laws really kept them separate from the gentiles it was the dietary laws among other things that were the most were the most powerful wall of separation that kept Jew and Gentile separated. 
for God to tear down now those dietary restrictions, to take them down uh, and say, now there is no more unclean animals. Peter, you can eat whatever you want. Paul would later on say, everything that God has made, speaking of things to eat, has been made by God. It's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. There is no unclean animals. Not that it's wise to eat everything on the face of the earth, but uh, there's no, from, a, from a, a, a ceremonial or religious standpoint, there are no unclean animals. And God is just, again, beginning to separate the wall that separated Jew and Gentile. Well, Peter said, Lord, I have never, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I've been a good Jewish boy all my life. I have never violated what you have said in your word, in, in the law. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. So for emphasis, God does it three times, shows him the sheet coming down to the earth, three different times. Possibly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all trying to communicate this point to Peter. Well, what was about to happen? He was about to be called upon to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. And so God was right now telling him, Peter, all the stuff in the Old Testament, all those dietary laws, all that separation that you would, you know, that you would maintain between yourselves and the Gentiles, that's all done now. They're no longer unclean. In fact, Paul will go on to say that through the blood of Christ he has he has torn down the middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile, making the two one new man in Christ, bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body, the body of Christ, the church. And so God is just kind of showing Peter, Peter, it's a new day. At the cross, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, Jew and Gentile. And God loves the whole world. It's almost like the Lord Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, don't you remember that I said that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell but have everlasting life, whosoever. Don't you remember when I went to Samaria and talked to that woman by the well? Remember the things I taught you? Now is the time to put them into practice. And Peter was growing, but this was a big one. This was a big one. Traditions can be more powerful than doctrine. I have seen people hold on to bad traditions, even though they read the word and found out for the first time in their life the Bible doesn't support that tradition or that religious ritual. And yet they continue on because it's a very powerful thing, tradition. Now, while Peter was wondering within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Isn't the timing of God interesting? I, I love the timing of God, you know, and maybe you've experienced this in your own life where you had some bill come out of nowhere and all of a sudden now, something you didn't plan for, maybe the car breaks down or something, and it's not something you can ignore. You mean it's got to be fixed, but you have no money. You have no money. You just, you just sit down and you just bow your head and say, Lord, my back is up against the wall on this one, Lord. I mean, I have no resources to, to fix this problem. Lord, would you provide for this? And you go get the mail and there's a check in the mail. Sent to you from somebody who lives across country. It took three days to get to your house. But God put it on their heart three days earlier to send that check, and it reached your house at the exact time you needed it. 
It's just the timing of God. And God does it that way to show us this is no coincidence, guys. I'm in charge. I'm looking out for your best interests. I, I got your needs. I know what you need. I'm taking care of it. And so these guys showed up just about the time Peter was wondering what in the world this all means. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Apparently he really had no clue why these guys had come. He was about to find out. And they said, Well, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon, uh, to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now here again, he is demonstrating how he is growing even more. Here he invites Gentiles into, it's not really his house, but he's staying there. A Jew would never invite a Gentile into their home. First of all, a Jew would never go into a Gentile's house because their homes were defiled. Everything you touched would make you defiled. And they were fed stories that the Gentiles would abort their fetuses and put them in bottles and bury them in the walls of their houses for good luck. And it was a horrible, you know, a lot of this superstition and things that, that, you know, when you don't really know people, you, everyone's got, you know, an idea of how these people really are until you actually get to know people, you know? It's, you know, prejudice is a horrible thing. But so many times it's just simply grounded in ignorance. I remember hearing a story one time about a guy who was a, um, belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. He hated Jews. It's all he ever heard was how the Jews did this and how they were vile. And he just heard stories about how wicked they were and how filthy they were and all these things, right? And he just hated the Jews. Hated them. In fact, he moved into an area and he found there was a Jewish rabbi and his family living in town. And so he went out and persecuted them. He tore up their tires and he graffitied their house and he did all kinds of horrible things. Well, he was caught. And the rabbi went to the jail, talked with him, ministered to him, forgave him. The guy had never really talked to a Jewish person. Found out that this man was a good man. He's a kind man. After all I've done to him, he's willing to forgive me. He's here at the jail visiting me. Well, he went on to become a close friend of the family, got out of the Ku Klux Klan, obviously. But isn't it true that prejudice is often rooted in ignorance? I mean, this Hurricane Katrina has really been breaking down some... some people have been trying to raise the walls, uh, you know, between black and white. It's so sad. But normal people, average people are inviting, you know, white families inviting black families into their homes. Black families inviting white families into their home. I saw a lady in, uh, in Houston, um, African-American woman, sweet woman, invi invited some uh, white family to live with her. And just how the walls are bro broken down, you know. And, 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 and I heard one uh, black family say, you know, I never really, um, I, never, I was always suspicious of white people until this family took me in. And I just saw what a wonderful family they were. And, and it just really is, is I'll, I'll never be the same again. And the same thing is true, vice versa. It's really showing people that, you know what, we're not different. I don't care what color our skin, it doesn't matter what color our skin is. We're all the same. We, we want to be loved. We have families. 
God loves us no matter what we are, what color our skin, no matter what economic level we live at. And in Christ, we can be one family. That's an awesome message. And so God is beginning to bring Peter to these folks to begin to tear down now the wall of partition separating Jew and Gentile as Peter was going to be used to preach the gospel to the first Gentile family and then community. And so, verse 24, The following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. The guy's not even saved yet and he's a witness. This guy convicts me. He's not even a Christian yet and he's already got people coming over. And Don't you love it? Don't you love, I mean, how hungry this man was to hear about God? As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Cornelius didn't really mean anything by this. I mean, he was a Gentile. He, he didn't really understand a lot of things and... He knew that Peter was a great man of God. It was just probably just, a, a, just an innocent act of respect. It was wrong. Peter made him know that. But Cornelius was just trying to be respectful. It's interesting, though, that whenever a person is given worship in the Scriptures, they always reject it and turn it right back to God. Whether that was um, Peter right here, or later on Paul and Barnabas when they were worshipped, for God doing a healing through the Apostle Paul. When John had his vision of, uh, of heaven, he was so overwhelmed that the angel showing him around, he fell at his feet and began to worship. And the angel said, hey, don't do that. I'm your fellow brother. Worship the Lord. But when Jesus was worshipped on the earth, he always received it because he's God. And he is worthy of our worship and our praise. But Peter rightly points out, look, I am just a man. Don't do this. Worship God. Now, I wish that those who consider themselves the successors of Peter in the Catholic Church would understand what Peter, the example he set forth. He didn't say, oh, yes, bow, my servant. Here's my ring on my hand. Kiss it, please, as we see today. He said, look, I'm just a man. See, the problem is Whenever God uses a man or a woman in great ways, people tend to place that individual on a pedestal. And they begin to think that that person is extra holy, is extra close to God. And if they're not careful, they could begin to even look at this person uh, in a way where they actually begin to worship them in their heart. And that is very sad. Whether you're talking about Peter or Mary or some other person that the church has... has um, canonized and now the church worships these are just servants of the lord they deserve no worship only god is worthy of worship because he is god and it's it's very dangerous when a person is used by god they must always keep themselves in the keep the right perspective of themselves because when people you know start chanting their name if you're not careful, like Saul, the first king of Israel, who started out as a humble guy, but when people started exalting him and chanting his name and all, he got puffed up with pride and began to think he was something really special. And then God had to bring him down. So Peter had the right perspective. And that's why God used him, because he never got in a place where he received worship and adoration, thinking he was someone great. 
hey, I'm just a man, just a servant. You worship the Lord. So verse 27 is, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go, or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, For what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. It's interesting, a lot of people believe that God does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. God hears everything. It's that he's under no obligation to answer the prayers of unbelievers. Unless that person is seeking to know him, then he will respond. But somehow people think, well, God doesn't hear unbelievers' prayers. God hears everything. When it says that God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers, it's just simply a way of saying God is not really listening in the sense that he is not under no obligation to respond. He hears everything. He's God. So God had heard Cornelius' prayers, and um, the angel said, Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I went to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Excuse me, I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And I just love the hunger. I just love the, oh, just tell us about God, will you? We want to know about God. You know, it's sad when Christians lose that. We all had that when we first got saved. But if you're not careful, the things of God can become familiar. And when things become familiar... They often are not treasured anymore. They're taken for granted. And that's sad. When we lose that zeal to know God. And you know, I think there's a great balance between new converts and old seasoned saints, if I could put it that way. The new converts fire us up because we see in them the zeal, the passion, and it sets us on fire. But we, hopefully, who are older than the Lord, having matured and been grounded in the word we could temper some of that raw zeal with a little discipleship and teaching the two complement each other don't they the two complement each other Spurgeon was asked one time what makes a great preacher you know what he said immediately a great congregation a great congregation makes a great preacher you know why because when a congregation loves to hear the word of God taught it just makes a preacher all the better. It makes a man all the better. And I'm thankful for this church because I love your hunger for the word. The fact that you want to hear what God has to say. You come out faithfully. You love the word. You love to hear it taught and so on and so forth. Uh, that makes your leaders, your teachers better than if we had to stand before a group of, group of stone faces that had no emotion. You know, you're trying to teach a bunch of corpses. It's hard to get fired up like that. I thank God that's not the case here. I think that this puts to rest the mentality, opinion, the, the, the belief. Look, we're all taking different roads to get to the same place. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, Cornelius was very sincere. He prayed all the time. He helped the poor. He was very devout in his religion. But the Lord didn't say, that's good enough, Cornelius. You're sincere. That's all I want. 
No, sincerity is not enough. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. It's truth that saves a person. The gospel. And God got to Cornelius the truth, what he needed to believe to be saved. I mean, you know, some people would uh, criticize Peter. Some skeptics. Leave the guy alone. He's perfectly happy. He's got a perfectly good religion. He's sincere. What are you bothering the guy for? What are you trying to change him? What are you trying to convert him? You know, we get that a lot. Why are you always trying to convert people, you Christians? We're all taking different roads to get to the same place. Jesus didn't feel that way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. We're not all taking different roads to get to the same place. There's only one way that leads to God. That's through Jesus Christ by faith. And that's what our mission is. Now, let, not to let everyone just kind of believe whatever they want, and as long as they're sincere, pat them on the back and say, hey, great, good for you. God bless you. No, it's to say, look, sincerity is good, and I know you're sincere, but here's what God has said about what it takes to get to heaven. It's not our good works. It's faith in Christ. Once you believe in him, yes, like Dorcas, go out and do all the good works you can, but those will not get you into heaven. They are just an evidence that you are a child of God now and want to reach the world with the love of Christ.